September 10th of 2001, I was sitting on the tarmac of John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City uh, in a plane. I wasn't sitting on the runway. We were sitting on the runway of John F. Kennedy Airport, and it was about 10 o'clock at night, and we had been sitting on this plane for about an hour, right as we were going to take off. There was some lightning in the area. The lightning turned into a storm. They didn't want us to turn back and go back into the terminal, so we just had to sit on the runway, and we were about to take an 11-hour flight to Moscow, Russia, my family and some friends of mine, and and we were sitting there, and, and when you're about to take an 11-hour flight in the air, you do not want to sit on that same plane for two hours on the ground. And so people were getting a little agitated. People were on edge, and we waited until it was almost midnight. Finally, the plane took off. We flew for 11 hours. We landed in Moscow, and we got off the plane. We got into customs, and it, there was just an eerie sense when we got into customs that day, and there were no TVs, and this was not really a time where people used international cell phones. Social media wasn't a thing yet. We had no idea what had gone on while we had been flying for the last 11 hours. We just knew that we had made this trip many times, and that for some reason, something felt different about the customs process that day. It seemed like every single person was taking significantly longer than they usually would, and there just was kind of an eerie sense in the airport. And so we walked out of the airport. We got on a bus. We actually drove across town to another airport where we were going to take another flight. And one of our interpreters went into the airport to kind of get some things ready to kind of prepare them for a group coming in. And he came running back out and he ran onto the bus and he said, there's been an attack in America and someone has bombed the World Trade Centers and they've fallen down just as quickly and as succinctly as that. And he kind of blurted it out so quickly. And have you ever been in a situation where someone says something that you kind of wish they had run by you before they said it, like to the entire class? And there was another interpreter who kind of was over him, was kind of his boss. And, and she had traveled extensively. She had been to the United States. She had been to uh, New York. She had seen the World Trade Centers. And, and when he said that they'd fallen down, and we know now not in a disrespectful way of any kind, but he said they'd fallen down. And she laughed. And she said, listen, I, I, I believe you. I believe that something has happened. I believe that there has been an attack, but you don't understand. I've been to the place you're talking to. I've been to that city. These buildings are gigantic. They're some of the biggest in the world. They didn't fall, and we don't want to alarm everybody on the bus, so let's kind of like take it down a notch. And so we all got our luggage together. We went into the airport and we watched in horror on the screens as sure enough, as we have been flying for the last 11 hours, the events of September 11th had taken place and the World Trade Centers had in fact fallen. And it's interesting how sometimes there are stories that when you hear them, they just immediately sound true. Like you don't even have to really know the details of the story. It's just as you hear it, everything you hear in the story lines up with what you've heard and what you've known and what you've experienced in the past. And so it rings true. Uh, you don't need empirical evidence to believe it. It just rings true. And there are other times that, that it's just too hard to believe. And if I'm being really honest, and I probably should not say this on an Easter Sunday, but the story of the resurrection is hard to believe. 
It's hard to wrap your mind around. Maybe if you grew up in church, maybe this is one of those stories for you that is easy to believe because you grew up as a child and you heard the story of Jesus and you heard of God sending his one and only son to earth to live a perfect life, to die on your behalf and to be raised after the third day. You've heard it your whole life. And so it lines up with everything you've ever heard. It lines up with what you've experienced. Maybe you would say, I've experienced the power of God in my life. I know him to be true, so I believe this story to be true. But if you have no background in church, if you have no understanding of the story of Jesus, it's a hard story to believe. It's a hard story to wrap your mind around. Even just beginning with this idea that someone would die on your behalf is hard enough to get your mind around. But then this idea that after he died, he was in the grave, dead for three days, and then rose from the grave. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's hard to get my mind around. Maybe it's because I have never seen a resurrection. I've never been present for a resurrection. And it's hard to get our mind around. And yet it's what we celebrate today. And if you look in the book of Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, it says this. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought some spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I'm always kind of amazed when people show up to things. Like, I'm really glad that you're all here today and also kind of surprised that you're all here today. Uh, A few weeks ago, I I was doing an event in in Lakeland where we used to live, and I was actually hosting this thing uh, for an anniversary of of some friends of mine that were doing uh, something. And and I had taken my daughters with me, and we were on our way over. And my nine-year-old daughter, Sophia, she, from the back seat, she just, to herself, busted out laughing. She was staring out the window laughing. And only kids can do that, by the way. Like if I was driving down the road and just busted out laughing, you'd be like, he's insane. Something's wrong with him. But she busted out laughing and I said, what's so funny? And she was like, and I'm going, by the way, to host this event. And she, she says, I was just thinking like, it would be hilarious if nobody comes to this thing. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, that, that sounds horrible. That sounds awful. Like, that sounds like my nightmare. Why would you say that? Like, I'm, there's something about someone who's about to have to stand up in front of people. I felt triggered. I was like, what do you know? Have you heard something? Are people not coming? I heard they sold tickets. I think people are coming. And so she, she's sitting there and she keeps, and she starts laughing again. And I was like, what is it? And she said, she said, it's so funny. You know, when we started the church a few months ago, I never told you this, but I had a dream that nobody came on the first Sunday. And I was like, I'm so glad that you didn't tell me that. And she said, actually, some people came. She said, our friends Caleb and Jen came. And she said, when you started preaching, Caleb and Jen and mom sat in the center three seats of the front row. And it was very awkward. (laughs) 
And I say, yeah, that would be very awkward. But I always kind of have this underlying sense whenever I go to anything or particularly whenever I'm hosting a party or something, they're like, maybe no one will ever show. Maybe no one, maybe this is going to be the time that we're going to plan and we're going to be ready, but no one is going to show up. And I'm kind of surprised in this moment, if I'm really honest, about the people that showed up at the tomb on the third day of Jesus' death. I'm kind of surprised that they did what they did. Because the person that we primarily are told was present at the resurrection of Jesus is Mary Magdalene. And she has a very interesting background. We don't know a whole lot about her history. A lot has been said. A lot has been wondered. A lot has been conjectured. But we don't know a ton about her history. But what we do know is that she grew up a young Jewish girl in a Gentile town, which just means that all her life, she was essentially an outsider. She spiritually believed different than everybody that she lived around. And so she grew up as an outsider. But we know that she did have a Jewish faith. So she grew up hearing stories of a resurrection. She heard stories that there would one day be someone who would come and who would set her people free, that, that, would, that would set her people free. She grew up hearing stories of resurrection. She grew up learning the prayers and going through the motions. But we also know that at some point in her life, she abandoned this faith. Like, like as she was growing up as a kid, she heard the stories, but as an adult, she needed those stories to be real in her life because she kind of changed paths and she left the religion that her family had given her behind. And we know that she made some extremely destructive choices that opened her up to a life that essentially brought death into her life that she was in a very desperate place. And, and I don't know if, if maybe you're here today and that's a little bit of your story. Like maybe you were handed an idea of religion and a faith from your family that at some point in your life, you realized it didn't quite work the way you expected it to. And so you left it behind. And that's the life that Mary was living in. And she, she chose to kind of live life her own way. And then Jesus came on the scene. Then Jesus came on the scene, and Jesus seemed to actually be probably one of the first people in Mary's life who actually was who he said he was and did what he said he, had, he would do. Like up to this point, religion had not cut it for her, and the life that she was trying to live on her own had not cut it for her. But Jesus came along, and he, he seemed to be who he said he was. He seemed to deliver on the promises that he made. And he actually did pull Mary out of her life of bondage and set her on a new path. And suddenly she's following this man who seems to be who he says he was. And she's seen him do incredible things. She's seen him perform miracles. And she's seen him, and this is so important, she's seen him raise the dead. She has witnessed him raise the dead. This is someone not like you and not like me who has probably not experienced a resurrection. This is someone who has experienced a resurrection. So her history would have been growing up as a child, hearing stories of resurrection, looking forward to a future resurrection, and now experiencing someone who actually has the power of resurrection. And then Jesus goes on to actually tell his followers that he will have to be crucified, buried, and rise on the third day. And so he's given them all of the clues they need. She has grown up believing in a resurrection. She's grown up looking forward to a resurrection. Now someone who she knows to have resurrection power says that he will be resurrected. If anyone is looking forward to a resurrection, it would be Mary. And so this, this must be why she's heading to the, the grave on this third day, because she's expecting a resurrection. But you can tell a lot about someone by what they're carrying. 
I was walking through my neighborhood just yesterday and I was thinking about the services today and I saw my neighbor who was carrying bags out of his house and he had beach toys and he had an umbrella and he had a cooler and I knew by what he was carrying he was going to the beach. And then I saw a guy who had his lawnmower parked at the end of his driveway and he was carrying gas out to the lawnmower and I knew he was doing lawn work. Because you can tell a lot by what someone is carrying. And when you look at the scriptures, it tells us that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Mary, who had all of the signs to be expecting a resurrection, was not expecting a resurrection. She was not going to the tomb on the third day to see if Jesus had risen from the dead. She asks the question, who will move the stone away? Mary is going to the tomb expecting the dead body of the one she had put her hope and her trust in. Mary is going to the tomb expecting to be disappointed yet again. She has been disappointed in religion. She has been disappointed in her own life. And now Jesus, who she put her faith and her trust in, she is going expecting to be disappointed. See, the spices that she was carrying were meant for a corpse, They were meant for a dead body. They were meant specifically to cover the smell that would have begun after three days in the grave. And so Mary, on her way to Jesus, picks up spices to cover the stench of death, to cover the disappointment she knows she's in for. And the truth is that you and I do the same thing. We pick up things along our journey to cover the stench of the disappointment in our life. We pick up things to cover the smell of death in our life. We, we pick up relationships that we know are not love, but the feeling of being needed and the feeling of companionship cover the stench of disappointment in our life. We, we pick up destructive habits that we know do nothing good for us, but they cover temporarily the stench of death in our life. We pick up extra shifts and work longer and harder, and we say it's because we love it or we need the money, but it's covering the stench of death in our lives. See, we all do what Mary did. We all often step into situations expecting to be disappointed. And so we compensate for it. And honestly, sometimes the the church has reinforced this idea by saying, if you follow Jesus, he will give you X, Y, and Z, when all we're really promising is that God will give you things that will cover the stench of death in your life and not actually bring life into your life. And Mary is on her way to the tomb, and she's disappointed, and she's carrying the spices. Because, see, it's, she's carrying nothing that would signify that she has any hope that Jesus would be alive. If, if, for, if perhaps she thought Jesus was going to be alive, she would probably be carrying something completely different. She would probably be carrying perhaps a, a change of clothes for Jesus who would have been wrapped in, de- in um, death clothes. He, he maybe would have been carrying some food for Jesus who would not have eaten in three days, but she's carrying spices because she's expecting death. She's expecting a corpse. And that is the posture that she is heading to the grave of Jesus in. It's a posture of disappointment. On Friday, I had to run some errands, and we were kind of getting ready for some things for the weekend, and I had to go to uh, the tractor supply company, and 
This may surprise you. I don't go to the tractor supply company all that often. I, I, I didn't really know my way around. I was looking around. I was trying to figure things out. And, and I took my oldest daughter, Bella, forgetting that these places, uh, they on Easter, they like have hundreds and hundreds of chickens just available for you in chick form, in their cutest form. And so as soon as we go in, you just hear just incessant chirping of little chickens. And they have a giant cage in the middle with just hundreds and hundreds of chickens. And immediately she's begging us to buy her a chick. And she's just begging us to buy a chick. And I'm like, we're not buying a chick. We live in a neighborhood. We don't really live in a place where you have chickens. We're not really chicken people. Um, <laughs> we don't really have land. They're not going to be able to roam. We also have a minor raccoon problem. And I don't want to increase that by like bringing in animals that they prey on um, and just attracting them to the yard. And so I was very against the chicken situation. And then we went and we held the chickens. And those, they're very cute. They're very cute. And we were holding the chickens. And, um, and so while we were holding the chickens, I, I texted my mom because my grandparents live on a farm and my sister lives on a farm. And I was like, listen, if we buy some chickens, you know, like in a couple months, would you take the chickens from us when they're full grown chickens? And so we, we weren't sure if we were going to get the chickens. We decided against the chickens. The thing that put me over the edge was they said you had to buy four chickens at once. You could not, you had to buy four chickens at once. I was like, I'm not buying four chickens. And so we leave. We leave, and we're on the interstate. We're heading back to the house, and I hear from my mother. She's like, oh, your sister wants the chickens. She wants the chickens. She definitely will take the chickens. And so the whole drive home, I'm like, maybe we're going to get the chickens. So we get off the interstate at our, at our exit, and I, meet, I decide on a whim. Like, we're, we're getting the chickens. And so we turn around, and we get on the interstate. And I, Bella, meanwhile, is in the back seat just so disappointed, just distraught. She's got, she can lay it on thick. And... And she's just gazing out the window, and she's very distraught. And I'm watching in my rearview mirror, and I'm just waiting to, for her to realize that we've turned around, and we're heading back in the complete opposite direction of the house. And she just keeps this distraught look. She's not happy. She's not having it. She keeps the look. She's very disappointed. Finally, we get off on the exit. I'm like, surely at this point, she still doesn't notice. We turn into the parking lot of Tractor Supply Co. We're back. Like 10 minutes later, we're back. And she does not, nothing changes on her face. I go around the car. I open the door. And I said, do you know why we're here? She said, is it to get the chickens? And I said, it's to get the chickens. And she's she just smiles huge, and, I, and we're walking in, and I said, when did you know that we were going back to get the chickens? And she said, I thought we were going back when we turned around, but I didn't want to get my hopes up until I knew for sure. And how many times have we already turned around, and we're already back on the right track, but we don't want to get our hopes up until we know? That is what disappointment will do to you. Disappointment will keep you from getting your hopes up. Disappointment will keep you from getting your hopes up, and it will cause you to expect what you've expected before. And that is Mary's problem in this moment, is that she is approaching Jesus the same way she approached religion and the same way she approached living her own life, which is, I know this is going to end in disappointment, so I might as well not get my hopes up. And this is how she is approaching the tomb when she comes to the, to the grave of Jesus. And in verse 3, it says, as they approached, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, first of all, this would have been a grave that was carved out of the side of a mountain, kind of like a cave, and there would have been a rock that was rolled in front of it that would have been thousands and thousands of pounds. Mary and these women knew that there was no way they could move it on their own. But it's interesting what love will cause you to do. 
to, to go towards something that seems to be impossible. But she moves towards the tomb and it says the stone was rolled away. Now, what's interesting about this is shortly after this story, we're told a story where the followers of Jesus are, are huddled together and they're locked behind closed doors in a room and Jesus just appears in the room. And so we know that the resurrected Jesus has no problem getting into rooms that are closed. And so I think it's interesting that they're very clear that the stone was rolled away. And I think the fact that these two stories are so close together in the Bible might just be a reminder that the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that Mary could get in. The stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that they could get in and see the evidence of the resurrection right in front of them. And see, you, you might think that there is a barrier between you and Jesus, but can I just tell you that the barrier is never on Jesus' side. There is no barrier that Jesus has a problem with. And if there is a barrier in your life that is too much for you, Jesus has no problem moving it to make a way for you. And so they look up and they see that the stone is rolled away and they find in there a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, this is interesting because the disciples were these core followers of Jesus, and Peter was one of those followers. And yet Jesus's message is tell the disciples and Peter. And why would he specify that we, he needed to tell the disciples and Peter? See, if you remember the story of Peter, Peter was one of the most zealous followers of Jesus. He was in some ways always kind of running ahead of Jesus, trying to get Jesus's message out there, trying to tell people who he was. But then when, G when Peter had this moment where he could stand up for knowing Jesus, in Jesus's darkest moment where Jesus is before the court that is going to decide his fate, whether he lives or dies, Peter is asked three times if he knows Jesus and all three times he denies him. He says, I don't know him. I've never known him. I've never been with him. He denies him three times. And so Peter has denied Christ. And in a way, it's as though Peter has decided for himself that he is no longer a disciple. Peter has disqualified himself as a follower of Jesus. Peter has, Peter has essentially said that now that I've denied Christ, I don't belong with the group anymore. I don't belong with Jesus anymore. But then in his first message to his followers, Jesus says, tell my disciples and Peter. My disciples and Peter. See, it's incredible to me that the first people to experience the power of the resurrection are Mary, the one who is disappointed, and Peter, the one who feels like a disappointment. That Mary has lived her whole life being disappointed in everything that comes her way. She's lived her whole life being disappointed in the religion that she had as a child. She's lived her whole life regretting her own choices. And now she's going to the tomb of Jesus expecting to again be disappointed. 
And then we have Peter who, who he feels like a disappointment because of his own choices, because of his own decision to deny Christ. And yet when Jesus rises from the dead, these are the first people that he chooses to tell. These are the first people that he chooses to give a message. And, and you may be here this morning and you may say that I, I'm like Mary and I've been disappointed. Or you may say I'm like Peter and I feel like the disappointment and the good news for you is that the resurrection is for you that the resurrection power of Jesus is for you. See, the problem with both Mary and Peter is that their disappointment was rooted in the past. Their disappointment was rooted in the situations that they had been through. Their disappointment was rooted in the decisions that they had made. And yet the hope of the resurrection is rooted in the future. Notice that Jesus says, tell Peter, I have gone ahead of him into Galilee. Um, the hope of the resurrection is out in front of you. It is not in your past. And I think this is a danger when we talk about the resurrection and the crucifixion of Jesus is sometimes we only talk about it in the light of what it does to our past. That, that, that by dying on the cross, Jesus took care of your past and that is true. By dying on the cross, Jesus took care of your past, but by rising from the dead, he pulls you into a new future. That, that by rising from the dead, he pulls you into a new future, and he says, yes, I can mend your past, but I will meet you in the future. Your hope is not in the past. The hope rooted in the past is regret. You cannot have hope for the past. Hope has to exist in the future. And this is why before Jesus even came, the writer of Jeremiah told of when Jesus would come. He said, God has a plan for your life in Jeremiah 29, 11. He said, it's a plan to prosper you and not to harm you, a plan for a hope and a future. God's intent was always for hope to be in your future. And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot look toward the future without hope. But without, without a future, you feel hopeless. And so he marries the two together and he puts the hope of the resurrection out in front of Peter. And he says that I'm going ahead of you. And the, the good news of the gospel is yes, that the cross took care of your past, but also that the resurrection pulls you into a new future. And Sometimes when we think about the, the future hope of the resurrection, we think about the afterlife. We think about when we die, spending eternal life with God. And that is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that if you surrender your life to Jesus, that you can live an eternal life with him. But in the book of Proverbs, the writer says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And when we think that the hope of the resurrection is deferred until our death. That is not much hope at all. That is not much hope at all that, that, that we receive Jesus, we, we surrender our life to him, and then someday we'll reap the reward of being in heaven. See, it is good news that if you surrender your life to Jesus, that when you die, you can spend eternity with him for eternal life. But if I can be so bold to say it's better news that if you surrender your life to him, he will give you new life right now. See, notice that Jesus didn't say, tell Peter, I will meet him in heaven. He didn't rise from the dead and say, tell Peter, I'll meet him in heaven. He said, I rose from the dead and I said, I'll meet you in Galilee. That was Peter's hometown. He said, Peter, I'm alive and I will meet you right where you are in your hometown. 
I will meet you with the hope of the resurrection right here and right now, and that is still the good news of the resurrection. The good news of the resurrection is not that it happened 2,000 years ago. The good news of the resurrection is that it can happen for you today. The good news of the resurrection is that it can happen for you today, that you can surrender your life to Jesus and that you can have the hope that he offers through the resurrection. And that yes, the cross takes care of your past, but the resurrection pulls you into a new future with him. See, when, when we stepped into that airport and we saw on those screens that the reality of what had been told to us was true, that what had happened that we didn't believe had happened had actually happened and the towers had actually fallen, you know that ushered in a new reality. We, we do not live in the same world today that we lived in on September 10th, 2001. And in the same way, when Mary stepped into that tomb and she saw that the reality of what she had been told and didn't think was going to happen had actually happened, it ushered in a new reality for her. And she no longer had to live in the world of disappointment and the world of hurt and in the world of pain that she had lived in because of the power of the resurrection. And when you choose to surrender your life to Jesus and to step into the future that he has for you and to receive the hope of that future through the power of the resurrection, you can live in that new reality that Jesus has. You can live, you can have life here and now. It's not just about surrendering your life to him so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's about surrendering your life to him so that you can live now, that you can have life now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning?